from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. Listening in on the conversation we have every week in which we explore those things related to work and the rest of life, family, community, society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project of our leadership program, both of which I launched 30 years ago. And I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can visit totalleadership.org for information on what we do to help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. Well, before the pandemic... Most of us, many of us, used uh, ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft uh, to get around. That was a booming business. How many of you, if you're listening now, do you, when was the last time you used one of those services? I'd be curious to know. Well, my guest today has studied gig workers like drivers for these ride-hailing services uh, extensively, including ethnographically, which means she lived in it. Uh, and she's currently researching how the pandemic is affecting uh, the people and organizations who are the, the gig economy. She's also examining how ride-hailing uh, workers on different continents navigate disputes. Uh, she's done other work in areas of mindfulness and is involved in some revising of our uh, MBA core curriculum to diversify it. We've got so much to talk with Lindsay Cameron about. She's an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School, a colleague of mine. Uh, and uh, I am thrilled to welcome you to the program. Lindsay, thanks so much for being my guest on Work in Life. It's an honor. It's going to be fun. I can already tell. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, before we get into our conversation, let me tell listeners a bit about you. Uh, Lindsay's research focuses on how changes in the modern workplace, like algorithms and machine learning, short-term employment contracts, and variable pay, how these affect work and workers. She recently completed this four-year ethnography of the largest employer in the gig economy, the ride-hailing industry, exploring how algorithms are fundamentally reshaping the nature of managerial control and how workers navigate this new workplace. Prior to her scholarly career, Lindsay spent over a decade in the U.S. intelligence and diplomatic communities as a technical and political analyst and completed several overseas assignments in the Middle East, Africa, and Europe, she holds a PhD in management from the University of Michigan, same place I have a PhD from. So I guess it's time for us to sing the cheer. Let's go blue. No, let's sorry. go blue. <laughs> All right. There, there you have it. Uh, she's also got a master's in engineering management from George Washington University and an SB from Harvard University in electrical engineering and computer science. She also studied Arabic intensively at the American University of Cairo. The amazing Lindsay Cameron. Lindsay, before we get into your work on the gig economy, 
first, can you give us just a snippet of how your remarkable background has sort of prepared you for the research that you're doing now? Your work in intelligence, diplomacy, and engineering. How does that inform your research? I mean, I'm deeply curious. I mean, as an intelligence analysis, it's all about like looking at the pieces to sort of how do you prevent a terrorist attack? Because uh, that's really what I focused in back then was in counterterrorism. And so I think this whole curiosity and putting together pieces and really wanting to understand people deeply is sort of translated to what I do now in research. I'm mostly a qualitative researcher, which means I live with people or in their, in their work lives, but also in what I do in teaching and in the classroom. Can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, there's a, I had a mentor at uh, Michigan, Bob Quinn, who could just magnify a classroom. And I remember having lunch to him and asking, like, how do you lead these big executive classes with 250 students so successfully? And he says, well, Lindsay, when I walk into that room, I'm prepared to love 250 strangers. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in the way he's really able to make those personal connections. So when I'm in the class at Warden, I teach in the MBA core, there's almost 200 students. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, I'm sort of grounded deep in my meditation uh, techniques. And it's like, how can I be a best service to the students right now and sort of meeting them where they're at? And mm -hmm. I mean, those are skills that I've sort of developed and lived throughout all of my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, I've taught for decades in the MBA Corps. I haven't uh, in about eight or nine years, but mm -hmm. I know well what that experience is like. And I just want to echo and underscore that fundamental idea that you've just shared with us. And that is you know, before I enter a classroom or a workshop or anything like that, I make sure to take a moment to remind myself that I'm there for them and that, uh, you know, their growth uh, and uh, <clears throat> movement is my, my primary concern. And it's really useful. You can do that entering any meeting of any sort and uh, you're going to have a better outcome. So thanks for reminding us about yeah. that and about how your curiosity and love uh, mm -hmm. for uh, the people that you are interacting with and studying informs your current work. Well, um, you know, uh, I, I, I should let you know, I'm not sure how often I've mentioned this on the air, uh, eight years in, I'll tell you folks, I, my first job coming out of uh, college in 1974 was as a New York City taxi driver. So I drove a taxi uh, for quite a while throughout college and then full-time when I got out of college. And uh, that informs my understanding of uh, the gig economy. With, let's start, Lindsay, by exploring what it is that you discovered from your research prior to the pandemic. So, um, you know, the, the gig economy was exploding uh, and changed so many aspects of work and the experience of work and how that worked the experience of work spills over into the other parts of uh, workers' lives. What was the main thing that you discovered in your ethnographic research about gig workers? Mm -hmm. um, so just to echo, you know, it's all about service. You know, we were sort of talking before about service in the classroom. I feel like there's service in my research. And it's funny that, you know, one of your first jobs was driving a New York City taxi driver. One of my very first jobs was actually cleaning toilets at the intelligence community. But Back to the Uber drivers. I think one thing I've really been seriously interrogating is why do people like this work so much? Mm. And if you come from a very like critical Marxist perspective, you'll be like, it's because they have schedule flexibility. Mm -hmm. And just because they have schedule flexibility, 
that's why they like it. And then you can sort of go on and on and say how these people actually don't have scheduled flexibility because their schedules are tied to whatever market demand is. Mm-hmm. And But I've really tried to seriously consider why do workers like it? And one study I find is that there are these games that they play. Sometimes they play the relational game, which means like you're in the car with someone, you're trying to create a good conversation. Maybe you have unicorn decals in your car. Maybe you've got some party lights going on to try to build that relational rapport. But sometimes you're trying to play that efficiency game. You're trying to make your money, get people in and out as quick as possible. And you're checking that app after every ride to see that green bar go up, meaning how much money you're taking in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's another play on like, what does autonomy really look like in this this work beyond just schedule flexibility? And a lot of my papers take that theme, looking about individual self-expression within this type of algorithmically designed work. So... It's, it's not just about the money. Um, you know, it's, it's also about, for some people, the opportunity to connect with other human beings. Uh, because otherwise, the, the driver is socially isolated, which was actually one of the things I liked about driving a taxi. Mm-hmm. The most important thing for me was uh, the autonomy, as, mm-hmm. as uh, our, Mar- our Marxist colleagues would attest is the most important aspect, the control, right, over, your, over where you go and basically when you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was really important. How do, how do, how do gig workers, particularly drivers establish connection and, and how does it help them to do that? So different ways that drivers, uh, establish connection. So I'd say in the relational games, they can decorate their cars. So in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there's this call or this car called the party car. And I remember that I had heard so many of the students talk about it. And when I got it one night, Friday at like seven o'clock, I mean, you could tell us why the party car had strobe lights in it. It had all these like twinkle sparklers. He was playing top 40 music. And so sort of like it's using the car as a conversation piece with the customers um, was another way people tried to bring relationality in. You know, some people got jobs through folks in the backseat. Uh, one person found a termite inspector. So it's about making these interpersonal connections. And then the app is sort of a sticky reminder of them. So for example, I check if I'm in a down mood, I'll go and scroll through the last 500 you know, rides I've done and see what are some of the wonderful comments I've gotten to people. Mm. So it makes it more of a relational experience for some. But for people who are playing the efficiency game, what I call the money game, like I think that's a completely valid game too because they're in there to work. And for there, it's more like the relationship is with the algorithm. It's with the technology and mm. how to sort of, how can you sort of try to, I don't want to say beat beat the app, work with the app to make the most money in the shortest amount of time. So the relationship shifts from the human realm to the app realm. So those are the two main types of kind of relationships that I'm seeing in one study. Yeah. That's what I pull. That's what I find. Yeah. And and so what are the implications then of uh, whether one adopts either the relationship game approach or the, uh, efficiency game approach. Yeah, so it's not quite an individual difference. I think there's there are times like like if you're say your daughter's visiting you from college and she runs up the water bill and you gotta pay it in two days, you're gonna play that efficiency game because you have a bill to pay. But then there are times. Do you where, know my daughter? Do Lindsay? I know your daughter? She you, runs up the water bill. You, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> But then there are times 
you know, where I've talked to drivers that they're very lonely. And so then they're like, yeah. and this was pre-pandemic, you know, and so then they'll play the relational game. So situational factors, I think, depend, you know, shape what game you're playing. But I think there are implications for long-term commitment during the app. You know, it's up to 80% of drivers cycle through between six to 12 months. And wow. That's a pretty high rate of turnover. It is. It is. And I think that's one of the tricky parts about the on-demand economy is that 10-year long-term commitment does not seem to be what they're they're looking for, but they do want to have like a large available amount of workers, i.e. workers on demand. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, as I've been following these drivers now over four years, I have been seeing there are people who are playing the relational game seem to be more satisfied with doing the work than Mm. people who are playing the efficiency game. Um, but I think the, the research is still out in terms of tenure. Like, will one group last longer than the other? I'm still waiting to see. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm so glad you're with us today. I'm speaking with Lindsay Cameron, who's an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School and has done some remarkable research on the gig economy and gig workers. Uh, so what's your prediction, Lindsay? Uh, are the people who are in pursuit of social uh, connection and affiliation more likely to stay than those who are doing it just for the money? You know, that's what you would think. Um, but in my four years, I find the people who are playing the efficiency game really need the money. And so they do sure. tend to be around. They're still around in my sample and still working, but they're very disgruntled. They they seem to be more about often at times going between different apps, like moving away from ride hailing to like try Instacart to try TaskRabbit to see if there are other ways they can maximize their money. Um so they, I think the way they stay in the game of working is going to look a little bit different than those who might play the relational game, who might develop more platform or even ride-hailing specific loyalties. Interesting. And so are there disadvantages from an employer perspective or from a uh, you know, business perspective for uh, drivers serving multiple masters uh, during a single shift? Ah, so in terms of the app, they definitely, the apps do want people to be committed. So there's sort of Mm. these incentives going on, you know, because I was a driver for three years on these platforms. And it would be if you do 10 rides in two hours, and you do them continuously, i.e. you don't take a break, then we'll give you a bigger bonus amount. So that's a way to sort of try to have people to sort of be embedded on a platform longer. Mm -hmm. I think for the longer term, though, there are questions about what do these on-demand companies really want from these independent workers? I mean, and I think sometimes it's a question of less, they think more about workers in the aggregate, like can we have enough supply to be able to meet a surge, as opposed to what does an individual worker want? I mean, these people aren't even employees. And so there's the weakening of the employment contract means there can be less attention directed to their work and well-being, which, I mean, we see in sort of all the the calls around unionization and greater labor protections for these Mm -hmm. workers because there are ways they're being mistreated and there's conversations about how can we give better protections to these people who are doing essential work particularly during the pandemic we're going to talk uh after the break about how the pandemic has has shifted some of the uh dynamics of of gig life um but i I want to dig a bit further into what you found particularly about how uh, gig workers um, create um, meaning in their work lives when um, they're, you know, they're not connected 
they're contractually connected to their employers. Um, and of course, they're not likely to see the people that they drive uh, very often after after uh, a single a single event. I, I remember taxi driving being uh, a very lonely uh, existence. Um, and I, I appreciated that because when I was in the front of the car, especially during the day in New York, people do not want to talk to you. At night, they're high, they're drunk, they're lost and alone, and they're, you know, poets, and they, they have a lot they want to say and, yeah. and confess to. Uh, but during the day, nobody wants to really talk to you. Uh, so I, I would use the traffic light uh, moment of, of a pause to study the dictionary, which I just have had a lifelong fascination with. And, and I could, you know, I could time that, uh, that space so that I could be learning new words. Uh, it's, it's lonely, though. And one of the things we found in our conversation with uh, a psychologist studying pandemic life just last week, Kristen Shockley, was that the, the, the thing that's really hurting people's performance and, and increasing stress is social isolation. So what do people... What do people's lives look like? What was it like to be in that role in terms of how you felt about yourself? I do not feel like I was the best Uber driver, possibly because I didn't like it. Um, I drove in D.C., which had tons and tons of traffic. Mm. Fares were incredibly low when I was driving because the city was... um, redoing the metro system Mm -hmm. and so uber fares were actually really low trying to capture you know this excess demand and and the same way you know i found like people weren't interested in talking to me the same as when i was a custodian many years back you know cleaning toilets at the intelligence community uh but I found myself, you know, at times where I purposely engage customers and I usually found ones who were, you know, that are close to me in terms of, you know, young women, we had more to talk about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people are just trying to get where they're, they're wanting to go. It was a service. Right. So I, so, but I think that's one of the dis, even though I didn't like ride hailing, I think what really sort of has forced me to stay open is I have followed a hundred drivers now for four years mm-hmm. and a lot of them like it. And it is the best option for them out of all the other options. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the other options may not be that great. It's fast food. It could be Walmart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's obviously there's social structure problems we have around low skilled work in America. And I don't have protections and benefits. But I do also want to honor that for many of them, this is better work than trying to do something that's fast food or at Walmart. And so this is this is good for them. Better because it gives them. Uh, greater income or greater flexibility or both both of those greater income greater flexibility greater chance to meet other people not having to deal with bosses who can be have all these racial or gender prejudices around them Mm -hmm. and they can guarantee a set they can guarantee their income like you might have to work 10 hours you might have to work 14 hours to get you know 150 Mm dollars but you're not dependent on somebody to schedule you and then you know there's just all this just-in-time scheduling you can never you know you can never know if you're going to get the hours you need in, in other kinds of jobs, in, other types in, other, of, in retail environments yeah. where algorithms yes. are driving work shifts yes. and it's destroying people's family lives because you can't plan. 
Exactly, exactly. And with the, the ride hailing or the on demand, I mean, fares are definitely decreasing. I mean, there's a downward pressure on wages. Oh. But what was consistent is that if you stay out long enough, you will make the money, as opposed to if you're dependent on an algorithm that's scheduling you for shifts, you don't act, you don't even have that amount of certainty. So, so yeah, there are problems across the board, mm-hmm. but this is the for some people, particularly many people who are doing this work are first generation to our country or mm-hmm. from underrepresented groups or mm-hmm. mo- mothers trying to get back into the workforce, prior stay at home mothers, that sometimes this is their first step into re-entering, you know, the more formal economy. Mm-hmm. And what's the effect of this kind of work life on people's lives beyond work, particularly in their families? What have you observed about that? In terms of their families, you know, I think it came in much more clearly when I was doing my pandemic um, interviews. And I would say that's one of the few times where I've actually received post-secondary trauma from doing this sort of qualitative work because some people's lives were destroyed. You know, if you have someone that's the only person working in their family and they have five children um, and then the pandemic happens and they kept on driving and people got COVID from passengers in their back seat, refusing to wear a mask. And then the whole family is sort of like, you know, now like the the whole family has COVID. You know, Mm -hmm. I was in one interview and the baby is crying the entire time because the mother doesn't have enough milk to breastfeed the baby because now she, she has COVID as well. And so, you know, when I, that's sort of the impact I sort of was seeing in people's families is people being very dependent on this type of work because it was working for them until Mm -hmm. the pandemic made things a a lot more difficult for some drivers. Wow. Yeah. That, that sounds horrific. Um, And, and, you know, what happened in that, in that scenario? I mean, what what else? What transpired ultimately for that that driver and that yeah. that driver's yeah. family? So they're first generation um, immigrants to the United States, and mm-hmm. so they have a large uh, network of co- you know other people in their ethnic group who are able mm-hmm. to pitch in and offer them support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was talking to them, it was maybe like two months into the pandemic, they were just starting to receive enough support from like their community to sort of be restabilized. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were very, in the families I talked to, they were affected like this. When they were talking to me, they were optimistic. And, but I think part of it is, well, one, because the interview is a chance for them to really be seen and heard. Because for mm-hmm. some of these people, I've known them for four years. So I've known, I've even seen their English improve because they're dri- you know, because they're driving for four years and able to talk to customers. Yeah. But, but I also want to say not everybody that I reached out to to interview for the, the third or fourth time said yes. And so there's right. a selection bias and that course. I happen to get people who are more well-resourced and some people weren't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one person, another first gen immigration immigrant had gotten COVID very early on from driving, got recuperated after staying a month in his house, went out on the road. The people refused to wear, they wore a mask as soon as they walked in the car, but pulled it down as soon as they were driving. And it was a two hour ride. And he said, I'm done. And he left and he now he does package delivery instead. So he stopped ride hailing entirely. Yeah. So how does package delivery compare, which must be booming uh, Mm -hmm. beyond comprehension? uh, How does that compare to to, uh, Uber or Lyft or other ride service uh, driving in terms of pay and flexibility? 
So it depends on what type of package delivery. You know, Steve Vaselli is a, a close colleague of mine, and there's a lot of difference between being an Amazon flex driver where you've got to go to a warehouse and pick up the packages. And so then you've got increased risk there versus, you know, maybe working for a more um, a mom and pop truck delivery service or, you know, cargo vans, which is where my, 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 this person actually went to, uh, he went off the on-demand economy for his, his package delivery because he felt like it's safer. But I, I have studied. Safer COVID-wise. Safer COVID-wise. But in terms of the folks I've been studying on Amazon Flex, uh, the bots have been a problem they've had. So bots are automated computer programs that can, when you're, when they advertise on these apps, you know, there's a job available. A bot can go in and like snatch the job before a human can go and snatch the job. And, and then as me being another flex person, I can actually pay the bot so I can get access Hold to on. the bot job. Whoa, 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 whoa. That, was, that was too much. That was too yeah. much. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not too much. It's just, I have to understand what a bot is. Okay, so, bot. So I would, please, please, I, please explain in 20 seconds what a bot is. Sorry, I was a hacker in my previous career. No, this, is, I'm sure there's listeners who understand what you're talking about. I'm an idiot. I need to have the explanation. A bot is a computer program that can automatically run to do okay so imagine you're trying to get concert tickets like garth brooks is like my favorite singer on earth and you're like refreshing that button like a thousand times trying to get that garth brooks ticket well you can have a bot go and hit the button a thousand times much faster than your finger could to go and get that ticket okay that's that's getting a ticket but that's not delivering a package but the bot so but when batches are available for workers to now bid on or try to grab so if i want to do the 7 to 11 you know amazon flex package delivery shift i have to go out and click a button to get that 7 to 11 delivery shift but Mm -hmm. there are bots that are faster than me that will grab that slot to do what? What is the the bot then drives the car to deliver to deliver packages? Sorry well, the per- for my stupidity here. <laughs> well, the person who owns the bot can then go and sell the slot. He, oh, just there's got. a market for selling the slots. <laughs> yes. They, oh, they're like they're like scalpers. Yes. All right, exactly. n- now I get it. All right, yes. hang on a second. Um, we got to take a real short break here. Um, we'll be back in in just. A, a minute or so uh, when we'll continue our conversation with Wharton Professor Lindsay Cameron about gig life and uh, all its discontents and its uh, who knows what kind of magical future is in store. Uh, I am Stu Friedman. This is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I run a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives and improve performance in all of them. It's called Total Leadership. Go to totalleadership.org to find out more about that. I've been on the Wharton faculty since 1984. My guest today, I'm now emeritus, my guest today is Lindsay Cameron, who is an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School and has probably not been alive since I started teaching at the Wharton School. Uh, I was born in 1984. See, this is what I'm saying. (laughs) Unbelievable. All right, so you have two generations of Wharton faculty talking about gig life. 
Um, let, let's go a little further on this topic, Lindsay, that you've been studying intensively. Um, I know that you've looked at how and why people resist the algorithm. What have you discovered in your research about that? So customer ratings are critical in this type of work. So you can be fired at any time if a, without any sort of means of recourse if your rating goes below a certain level or if a customer just says you've done something inappropriate. Mm. You know, one person was blocked from the app because they said his car smelled like weed and his car did smell like weed, but it was because the person before him had taken him to the dispensary. And, and did so- he, Did he have a, a recourse to any kind of due process? So he is able, he was able to sort of um, file recourse. He was able to complain three to four mm-hmm. days later, he got back on the app. That's three to four days of income lost. And it completely varies. You know, there's a big, there's a guild in New York City, the Independent Drivers Guild. Yeah. Less, more than 90% of their cases though are not resolved in favor of the client. So this per- for the rider. So in mm-hmm. this person's case, it worked out really well, but mm-hmm. not in everybody's case. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of resistance about customers. That would be you and me, Stu, and like how to game them to make sure they get a five-star rating for them. Mm-hmm. Or if they think the customer isn't going to give them five stars, to make sure that rating isn't going to count. Ah, how do you, how do you, how do you discount a, a, a rider's rating? Well, um, if I got you in the car and you were in a bad mood, because you can just tell that some customers are like misbehaving people, they're just going to give you a bad rating because they're I in bad always moods. behave very well. You behave <laughs> okay when I'm when I'm in a when I'm in a taxi because I drove a taxi <laughs> almost fifty years ago. I know what it's like. Okay, I have a lot of sensitivity, just like you did a menial job. I'll yeah. bet that you have a lot of compassion for people doing this work, right? Yeah, exactly. Of course you do. Exactly. All right. So let's say you know you got an ornery person in the back there who's going to give you a one. Mm-hmm. What do you do? I'll end the ride early. And so maybe I'm taking you the last, you know, 100, 200 feet to your destination free of charge. Uh-huh. But that means you can't rate me. Or mm. so, or I'll give you a rating that's a one instead because the two, because the drivers believe that if, both people rate the interaction low, it's less likely to be flagged as problematic in the system as opposed to me as the driver give you a five and then me as the customer give you a one. Wow, so if you make it a symmetrical hate-hate relationship, then it's going to be discounted. But is that true? You got me. (laughs) You don't know. Okay. (laughs) And that's, that's the thing about studying these platforms is it's all from the mind of the workers and how they are perceiving, Uh accepting, and rejecting and resisting the algorithm. Because the algorithm changes so quickly using all of the, you know, you know, you know, these big minds in each of the center that are sort of planning out routes and what makes the most sense. Like you can't even possibly know what the algorithm is going to do because it's learning on the algorithm itself is learning on the fly. So, so that's with, me saying I don't know. With the algorithm, well, in a way that is informative. So with, with the algorithm, let's with a capital A taking over so much of uh, the organization of work tasks at least in that sector of the economy, we'll call we're calling the gig economy. What does this imply for uh, the, the freedom and control and autonomy, which is increasingly important for uh, all all kinds of workers, but especially so to the extent that um, working families uh, need to have flexibility, especially in pandemic times, 
to be able to do all the things that that they've got to respond to on a kind of ad hoc basis? Mm-hmm. You know, these are the big questions that I think about, like, what does this mean for freedom, control and worker autonomy? You know, I feel like at the more micro individual level, individuals feel like they have more choice. And that Uh makes the work more enjoyable for them. But at the same time, because I'm enjoying the work, I feel like I have autonomy. That then allows me to consent or buy into this larger labor structure that is the on-demand economy. And so it's like, because, so what I'm trying to say is because I feel free and like I have autonomy, therefore I'm going to agree to do this work structure that's ultimately very controlling. So autonomy and control Mm -hmm. are like, they're not antithetical. They always are in dialogue with one another. Hmm. So what do you foresee as you look five years out for people in the gig world, what life is going to be like for them um, when they are, let's call it on the job? You know, I'm optimistic. There's a lot of conversations in labor circles and regulations about getting better propos- like better protections for these mm-hmm. workers. You know, and Prop 22 uh, did not pass in California. But there are things that have been happening at the city level in New York City, in Seattle, um, that are giving people, you know, guaranteed wages, making sure there's bathrooms that they can go to. Because to cabbies, you had bathrooms you could go to in New York City. Right? Like um, now you do. No, the standard was to have a bottle Okay, okay. That you that you peed in periodically. Things have, things have improved for cabbies <laughs> then, I'd say, in New York City. But for Uber drivers, they haven't. Uh-huh. And so, you know, as me as a woman driving in D.C., it was hard for me to go to the bathroom. So I'm excited and optimistic about these sort of new protections that are coming in for workers. And one thing that we really saw in the pandemic was the Pandemic Relief Act was extended to the first time ever for yep. these groups of workers. And so, you know, I did know I told these stories that were very true and heart-wrenching about how the pandemic, you know, really harmed families. Mm -hmm. But I had some drivers that were doing great because now they had this guaranteed chunk of income Mm -hmm. and they were able to move to cities that had lower cost of living. They were able to pay for training or to buy equipment they wanted to do for like, you know, some of them were like, um, they had, I want to be careful in what I'm saying to not, you know, reveal the name of any of the people. They wanted to buy special equipment, you know, Uh to go out and like visit people's homes to do uh, some sort of direct sales work. And they were able to do that with this money that they got Mm. from the Pandemic Relief Act. So for not all drivers, was it was it as a detrimental? And, you know, I have an article that came out in Fast Company a few months ago that looks at all the different types of effects the Pandemic Relief Act had on workers or on-demand workers. So to learn more about that, just go to the Fast Company article. Yeah. Um, Well, what if you found that you can offer this? There's probably some gig workers listening to this conversation right now, maybe even driving right now. Uh, What's the best advice that you have for them based on what you have discovered in your research? No, I think forms and are very powerful. So the online Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups, every community, even, you know, I'm studying drivers now in Africa and Eastern Europe. They all still have these online platforms. And so what are these online social groups? Think of them as like the virtual water cooler. Forums. Yeah, forms. Mm -hmm. 
And so when I was studying my drivers, many of them I recruited off the street. You know, I'd be in a new city and using a friend's app and like hailing rides and meeting drivers. And so the majority of my those drivers weren't involved in these online communities. But I find that those who are in online communities are more aware of sort of their rights of what they can ask for. Like you don't have to give somebody a ride that refuses to put on a seatbelt, you know, or doesn't have a child, a seat, you know, a safety seat for their child. And so it creates this sort of social support. So you know your rights, you know what to ask for, and you're abreast the changes that are happening on the platform. So that would be my big advice would be to find a social community. So that you don't experience to the same degree the kind of social isolation that can really be harmful. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius mm-hmm. XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking to Lindsay Cameron who is my colleague here in the management department at the Wharton School about her work on the gig economy. So finding ways of connecting to people who are in similar situations. And and Um, it's social connections, but also sometimes the platforms do serious missteps. Like you've just seen the recent FTC filing against Amazon flex drivers about how they were underpaid because their tips were counted as part of their hourly wages. And we've seen that at DoorDash too. And that's explicitly was against the original terms of contract that the workers thought they were under. And it's really in these social forums like the those online these online forums that people you know, they get the social aspect of having peers, but they can also know, you know, when there are changes in the app that may or may not be in workers' interest. Yeah, uh, and I could see how that would make them stronger because they're organizing and able to Mm -hmm. take collective action, Mm -hmm. uh, but also reduce that sense of being alone, uh, which creates a greater sense of uh, belonging and uh, mm-hmm. makes you feel better about what you're doing every day, aside from the individual interactions that you have with people yeah. uh, in the in the car uh, that you're driving. Um, anything else that you have to offer that you've discovered in in living in that world, studying that world, in terms of how the work that people do as ride hailing service providers uh, and how that affects their family lives. What did you see that people did that enriched their family lives or that hurt their family lives that would be useful for listeners to know, both as drivers themselves, if they are, or as passengers, so that they are able to um, be the kind of passenger that uh, we would all want that passenger to be? Courteous, respectful, compassionate, mm-hmm. um, so I do think in terms of drivers and their family lives, the, it, then it would go around to, to, to the schedule flexibility mm-hmm. that, you know, men were, a, you know, I talked to some people that were stay at home fathers and were able to schedule around their children's performances mm-hmm. and things like that. So, but also to meet like last minute expenses, like mm-hmm. when your daughter needs something for band recital or, you know, your daughter's due, she drives up your water bill. No, um, I was just kidding about that. She doesn't- <laughs> There's a... <laughs> but um, in, in terms in terms of what we should be to be a, be a good passenger, yeah, I mean, I think it's like basic human courtesy things. You know, like saying hello. You know, many of them aren't engaging in a long conversation, but it's particularly around calling a ride when you have enough time to get to where you're going. Mm. 
which can be tricky because you, but you don't want your driver to feel pressed for time because then that creates anxiety in the car and that can change their driving. So it's giving yourself enough time. And I also think there are questions I've been thinking about of what does it mean to be an ethical consumer of these sorts of services? Yeah. Because we all know, you know, these people are not getting the same wage protections, the same salary, you know, minimum salary guarantees that they should be. Yeah. But they make our lives as middle class or, you know, professional folks so much easier. Uh, particularly think about how often we use Amazon Prime and what does that imply for all those workers along the supply chain? And I don't think I have an easy answer for that right now. It's something I think about, but what does it be? What does it mean to be a modern ethical day consumer? I don't know if yeah. maybe you have any thoughts about that. Well, I tip big, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I try to be generous in tipping. Uh, mm-hmm. And I try to acknowledge the human being when I have the interaction with them, yeah. you know, whether it's at my door or, you know, in pre-pandemic life, you know, if it's somebody who is providing a ride for me, for example, um, I, I think you're right. It is about the the uh, essential humanity that binds us and to be acknowledging that. It's hard to do, though, because, you know, you're in a service role. But I remember feeling keenly the pain of uh, knowing I was a second class citizen to the person mm-hmm. who was in the back seat. Uh, and, you know, quite a few of them let me know that quite, you know, very explicitly, yeah. which is why driving at night was always so much more fun, even if it was yeah. a little more dangerous, yeah. because there you had people who wanted to talk mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and to engage you and to yeah. you know, just 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 let their lives unfold. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You know, I, when I was a custodian, my uh, my boss thought it was very funny to have me like clean the toilets in the, uh, the the office of like the head VP at the intelligence community. And of course, nobody would talk to me. So I started wearing these T-shirts that said Princeton and Harvard and Stanford. And finally, one day the VP saw me and he says, why are you wearing a Princeton T-shirt? Um, and I said, he's like, do you go to Princeton? And I'm like, no, I actually go to Harvard and I'm an intern here during the daytime, but I don't get paid enough. So I come back here at night to clean your offices to to earn more money. He was all ears. The next day I got an email and I was in his office and uh, he made things right. Hmm. Um, (laughs) He made things right for all the interns, but I kept my cleaning job because it felt bad to quit in the middle of the summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I hear. Good for you, Lindsay. (laughs) Yeah. Creating. Real change. Go ahead. So you were. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying about the shared humanity. But then, you know, this is the, you know, thinking about Instacart and DoorDash and, you know, how they are sort of hurting sort of small restaurants and small Mm. local grocery stores. You know, there's a call for, you know, if you have to buy groceries to walk and get them yourselves or to pay cash when you're going to the taqueria and call them directly. Because even if you go through DoorDash and place the order and pick it up, you know, DoorDash is still getting a percentage. So I think there are larger questions about like, well, how do you be a good consumer if you're using an on-demand app? But then what does it mean for if you're using an Mm. on-demand app, it's a middle man because ultimately these things can just you know there's mixed events of of what they do to small local businesses versus what they can do to chains that have bigger financial resources Mm -hmm. at their disposal Hmm. these are big questions they are big uh, questions (laughs) that we probably don't have time to have full resolution on but this might be a good time for us to turn in the few minutes we have left to your work on mindfulness Uh, Mm -hmm. because uh that is uh, a means for finding calm and, and clarity and, and harmony day to day 
in the stress and strains, the, the hurly burly mm-hmm. of our lives, particularly the lives of people who don't have a lot of control over what's happening around them. Tell us mm-hmm. uh, what's the essence of the, of the work you're doing in that. In that yes. Realm. So it started, you know, back when I was serving in Iraq, you know, and their bombs going off and I just started, I didn't know what meditation was. I think I probably read a yoga journal article and like sat in the corner and started meditating. And then my practice has grown from that. Um, you know, my father actually died in my arms 10 years ago, and I was able to really be with him during that dying process. And that really is thanks to my meditation practice. Hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm on the path for ordination. So it's a big part of my life. But in terms of research, my very, it's funny, you should ask, my very first paper was about mindfulness. And it was around call center agents and a big insurance company, which is a very stressful job. You know, you're not treated like a human. And you're sort of being driven by this clock. Like It's a very mechanized, tailorized Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. and what we had them do is before they would pick up the phone to answer the next call they would take two or three centering breaths you know the there we did it yeah and we saw that it definitely positively impacted the relationships they were having with customers so this interpersonal affect Mm. um so right you know i'm a big personal believer in a mindfulness no matter who you are it's or what job you have it's like a skill to be human is to be relational to be in that present moment whether you're interacting with a human that's the customer in your back seat, or you're interacting with the algorithm trying to figure out the best ride and to make sure you don't get a bad rating. Like you need that presence of thought to be able to engage and, you know, and take action. So you are a professor now at the, at the management department at the Wharton school. I, I am emeritus. I only teach now in the executive MBA program. What, what changes in the last couple minutes here are you helping to to create uh, to bring our curriculum into the the current political mm-hmm. cultural uh, context? So, um, you know, I'm very fortunate to be te- teaching the core class because it allows me to see like almost half of the, the MBA students in a given year. And this summer, the stu- or last summer, the students had put together a petition, you know, particularly after the murders of, of George Floyd and so mm-hmm. many other men and women that remain unnamed mm-hmm. um, about having the core curriculum have a better voice around diversity, whether it's race, gender, social class, labor issues. And I was highlighted as one of the professors that was sort of doing a good job in incorporating that in the, in the, you know, those materials already, but I definitely felt the call that there was even more to be done. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a really talented MBA student, uh, um, uh, Jennifer, Jessica Lawson, and, you know, really worked on refocusing the, you know, the core class on, you know, when we're talking about motivation, we talk about how do you motivate an employee versus an independent contractor differently, looking at Uber and what's happening around Prop 22 as a case. Uh, We look at uh, the the trends around some companies like Patreon have done a really good job of, um, this is a a tech company, a startup, or they're bigger than a startup now, out in the Valley, but how they really tried to diversify and bring more women in who are engineers. And how are you able to to do this thing that's sort of a very hard thing to do that many tech companies are um, 
are struggling with. Mm. So I've really sort of, one of the things I've been really interested in is like, how do we bring in social issues that are a pressing concern to us all, but also integrate them in sort of what are the day-to-day things that we're teaching as part of the core curriculum, because it's not separate. It's not like work is here and diversity and inclusion is over there. Like they're all intertwined and we're all privileged in some ways. And we all in some ways don't have privilege in other ways. And so Mm -hmm. it's something that I think should be constantly on the mind as we're sort of, you know, trying to do this thing called work and life and being a human. Mm-hmm. So how has that work been received by uh, students? Well, talk to me next week. That would be the very first class. Oh, okay. But, yeah. But I did teach a master class to it, to our prospective uh, students last semester. And it went, it went really well. It went what, really what did well. they like? What did they like about this approach? incredibly topical. I mean, we're talking about things that were in the news like two days before Mm -hmm. and with the diversity of voices that are being represented like in cases, but also in just in the ways different people think. You just can't name or make a protagonist as black or Hispanic. It's about, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the different cultural values they might signal as opposed to someone that's in part of the more white dominant culture. Mm -hmm. So that was the reaction I got from what I test, I test drove. And Mm -hmm. now I'm about to sort of unleash the whole class starting next week. Oh, well, so you'll have to come back and tell us what you discover. I've done uh, a number of shows in this last year on uh, race and work. Yeah. including some of our colleagues and, and other scholars uh, from around, around the U.S. Uh, and it's, it's been a central topic of conversation, of course, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> go ahead. Uh, we're, we're about to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts before we have to say farewell. Yeah, and I just, just because it's radio and I realize people can't see me that I'm actually a black woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just been a real, and I don't, you know, explicitly study these topics around uh, race or, or gender or DNI, but I think it's just been a real pleasure and an honor to, to sort of integrate them and in sort of like the ways we're thinking about things more broadly, because I believe that you need sort of this deep bench expertise and then you also need to sort of tell the broader picture of like how does it serve the the entire whole sort of like what we were talking about when we first got started us to about how how when you're there for the students and when you're there for your research like how can it serve something that's bigger than you yourself as a person yeah and that gives you the scholar uh a sense of um harmony and purpose that enriches your life i'm sure right? And authenticity. That's it. Yeah. That you are uh, acting, living in accord with the values that you hold dear. That's it. Bringing your whole self to work. That's what one of my mentors, Laura Morgan Roberts says. (laughs) Yeah. She was uh, among my most favorite guests ever who appeared on our show about six months ago. Folks, if you want to know more, go to that episode. But for (laughs) now, let me just say to Lindsay Cameron, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Where's the best place for listeners to learn more about your remarkable work? Well, my website is lindsaycameron.com. Um, you can also just Google Lindsay Cameron Warden and it'll bring you to my Warden page. I both keep them up to date with everything that uh, I'm up to right now. So you can read more about the box as they come online in that research project. <laughs> Those bots. Oh my goodness. Lindsay, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Okay. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show today, you can simply email me. Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. 
there will be no bot intermediating between you and me. You can just write to me. And our station is at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow on Twitter, SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. And you can also find uh, podcasts, free podcast versions of our show at TotalLeadership.org. And there's all kinds of resources there, free stuff, videos, book chapters, articles, all kinds of things that can help you to create more harmony and better performance in all the different parts of life. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.